Kia ora everyone, this is Anderson's Odyssey. I'm Jacob Anderson and my guest today is Blair Chuk, who is a Olympic silver and gold medalist, uh, ocean race sailor and America's Cup champion. How are you going, Blair? G'day, Jacob. Yeah, good. Thank you, mate. Yeah, l- lockdown um, for you is probably nothing, I mean, it's, it's nothing like... Um, being at sea for for four weeks or or however long how long is the is is it is the longest leg in the ocean race i think the longest leg we did in the last ocean race was um just um yeah like 23 days or something so there's quite a few that are around that three week mark i'd say that's the um that's normal for most of them so uh yeah this is slightly longer but um probably a little bit a little bit easier um although you know in some ways doing the the race you're kind of just concentrating on saving the boat and um and you know eating and sleeping so it's actually kind of simple too yeah i mean i think people are probably a little bit more rested um with the lockdown but when you guys are on the ocean race is is it four hours rest and then a four hour shift basically the whole time is that how it works yeah, that's pretty much how, how it rolls the whole time. You kind of vary that a little bit when you're leaving leaving port or when you're close to arriving into a, a new city. Um, and then also, you know, any time when there's a weather squall or a you need to change a sail or you need to do anything like that, you're kind of on standby. So you run four hours on, four hours off and the whole, throughout three weeks but then you're kind of on standby the whole time so you don't it doesn't work out like you get four hours of sleep every off watch it's more likely that you get say somewhere like six hours sleep in 24 hours maybe so do, do you find you're just constantly tired because i mean that seems like a pretty intense regime where you never really get to fully recover i think the first couple of days you're quite tired uh, as your body gets back into being offshore and then you kind of get into this mode where you're, you're pretty tired but if you're sleeping like if you get like two hours sleep you know each off watch so six hours total in, in 24 hours then you're pretty well rested like I'd say that's that's pretty good it's the off watches where you you don't sleep so you, you've been on deck for four hours you go down you have some food you get in your bunk without before you get to sleep you have to get back back up on deck to do a sail change or do a you know a maneuver or whatnot and then by the time you come back down you maybe do another one or maybe when that maneuver ended might be the end of your off watch already so um and then you're back on for four hours so then you've gone 12 hours with no sleep and then you know if that happens again in the next next off watch then you kind of start to get on the back foot so yeah if at times if you get in that two hours sleep or you know, even if it's broken, you're kind of pretty good. But if you miss that, you you struggle. So yeah, when you're when you're really short on sleep or kind of in those pretty challenging conditions, what, what is there is there some protocols or processes that you guys have to try and um, I guess ensure that you reduce the amount of mistakes or any kind of risk that there might be. Yeah, I wouldn't say we have like strict protocols, but you you learn the people around you, especially um, well in the lead up to the race. You 
you kind of already spend a bit of time with with the crew, but it's not till you really get going that you you learn a lot about them. And then, yeah, throughout the race, you just learn and you know when someone's struggling a little bit because it might have be that a certain person got affected more than someone else, or if the sail changed or the manoeuvres happen and you're off off watch, you know, for a few in a row, then it's you and your buddy that get affected. So you kind of learn who's struggling. You should kind of try and take up the, the weight for them during that time. And, and the same, if you're the tired one, you hope that your teammates sort of help you out. So uh, a big part of the race is making good decisions, uh, making the boat go, keep going fast, even when you are struggling. And, you know, that's one of the things I really learned in the in, the race was just how hard to push and when to back off and you know how to keep making good decisions when you're really fatigued. I mean I think people think that a five-day cricket test is is a long time to be in the last innings when it's all down to the wire and it took five days to get this result but you guys are racing for weeks on end um, or months actually, and then it, it's the same thing. It can come down to the last few minutes of the race. Um, what's it like when you're sailing in the middle of the Southern Ocean, or just you've kind of you, you're, you're out of contact from from anyone? But then there's these these boats that are only a few a few <laughs> k's away from each other, or you know, really close to each other. What's that kind of experience like? I think that's one of the, the cool things about the race is you're doing this race, which goes all the way around the world. You're sailing against some of the best sailors in the world, uh, but you're also going to these really unique and isolated places. And that's certainly one of the things I really enjoyed about the race. With that, you kind of, I don't know, the, the emotions come and go a little bit. Most of the time you're just concentrating on the, the competition, trying to make the boat go fast. But there are times when you sort of have to think, and go, yeah, this is pretty cool. Like we uh, had in, it was a leg three from Cape Town to Melbourne. We had a really close battle with Dong Fong. And we were jibing like back and forth versus each other, like maybe 24 or 30 jibes in, in 24 hours, like, you know, one an hour. Like it was a lot, like basically no sleep. And at one stage, they crossed behind us by, I think, maybe two boat lengths, you know, 50 meters or something. And like enough to see everyone's faces and you know at that stage you sort of just have to give them a wave and you know a bit of a yahoo even though you're racing against them and just try and take in the moment because it is pretty surreal what's the, i mean I, I went on a voe down to the auckland islands and you're sort of in a three four meter swell so you're you're in the trough and then you lose the horizon then you kind of go back up but what it's sort of strange in small small boats when you can lose all perspective when you're sort of beneath the swell. What sort of swell or what sort of conditions were you guys battling with in, in some of the harder areas to sail? Yeah, I think, you know, certainly the Southern Ocean is where you get probably the biggest waves, but you can get big waves anywhere in the world, you know, sometimes close to lands actually where it's quite gnarly because it's a bit steeper waves and, you know, the shallow water kicks up the waves a bit more. but the Southern Ocean's where we had the, the biggest waves and I'm not sure on the exact height, but they're probably, you know, eight, 10 metres tall. Uh, but the, the the thing with our boats is that you're going pretty fast, you know, so you kind of, for the most part, you're surfing down the waves and then you're deciding where to go before you crash into the next one and then just sort of snaking your way through. 
whereas if you're in a slower boat at that stage you're kind of getting swallowed up by the wave you might surf it for a bit and then you stop and wait for the next one but our boats because you're going sort of over 20 knots most of the time through that stuff you're kind of just on a bit of a sleigh ride and you can decide where you want to go do you um do do you think you like i mean obviously there's there's some boats that can go a lot faster do you think how fast or, or how hard do you think you could push um vessels in the in the long form races in some of these you know really um gnarly conditions yeah i mean these boats we were sailing you're pushing them as hard as you can you know the they were built quite strong so the the weak link is probably the human factor uh because as you surf down waves you know you're just going for it it might be the middle of the night and you don't know when you're going to crash into the bottom of it you do crash into the bottom of it and then you get this wall of water which comes right over and it hits you pretty hard you know so you might be doing 30 knots at the time and that water you know is enough to sort of knock you off your feet um, that's part of the reason why you have to be tethered on so you know for us in the southern ocean and when we're pushing the boat hard the human element was what sort of uh slowed you down and that would be the first thing to sort of make you back off uh but you could you know you could sail a foiling boat down there if it was if it was the right boat not the boat we sail in the america's cup that would be too difficult but you know some of the big trimarans and catamarans now are, are foiling but you yeah you have to be able to it has to be sort of a well thought out design to be able to foil the whole time through those waves because it is um you know pretty rough conditions i think i remember talking to marco and he said when they were doing he would lose something like six or seven kgs on each leg just just burning energy did you guys have the same sort of weight loss or what what's sort of the, the impact on on the body no i didn't lose too much weight um i'm pretty good at eating though so uh, a few of us young guys on board the boat would would just eat and stay relatively the same maybe lose a kg or two or three maybe um a few of the older guys on on board our boat definitely lost a bit of weight they sort of yeah lost the same six or maybe even eight kilos in, a, in three weeks so quite a lot but they you know wouldn't wouldn't eat that much and you're using quite a lot of energy even when you don't think you are because the boat's jerking around the the motion's quite violent you end up you end up just sort of tensed up a bit and bracing yourself which uses quite a lot of energy so you are you are burning a lot so that's why it's important to keep you know uh or hydrated i think and eating good food because if you don't do that then it's it is harder to make good decisions i think i mean time and and rest are the all, all the kind of the key thing so when you're eating are you guys just doing quick d high meals or, or high you know protein bars or what are you guys getting through to try and just keep the energy levels up yeah you're, you're trying to eat as quick as you can because you're eating and you're off watch when you're trying to get to sleep so if you sort of muck around and you know take a while to eat your meal and stuff that's just eating into the mountain you're gonna be sleeping and then therefore if that you know over a few days it adds up and into hours of you know lost sleep so you definitely try and be organized to just get something in quick and get to get to sleep uh but it's yeah it's all rehydrated food so uh 
you're just trying to get as, as many calories as, as you can in really you also have yeah bars and and smaller snacks and sometimes when it's it's rough you can't you can't have the rehydrated meals because it's too hard to boil the water and that sort of thing with how violent it is on the boat so you might go 24 or 48 hours or something without without a proper meal and you just have to have snacks at that stage and and then you can get back into those bigger meals which you'd have sort of three times a day yeah so and then i get i guess some people wake up and you just there's no breakfast lunch and dinner right? it's all just just the same meals whenever you're hungry just go yeah we we on our boat everyone was a little bit different on our boat we tried to have uh two sort of dinner meals so a I don't even know what they were, spaghetti bolognese and uh, I don't know, some sort of curry. And then we'd have one uh, muesli that we'd try and have in the morning. So that w- we would try and sort of stick to that and then fit other meals in around. But, you know, as it is, because you can't predict exactly what weather pattern you're going to be into when you're manoeuvring or when you're uh, doing a sail change, then... So, uh, so I... I was imagining it was individual dehome meals, but were you doing like half the team a bulk, a bulk dehome meal? Well, that's how some teams would do it. So some teams would actually have like a uh, a small chili bin esky, and they would put uh, enough for ten people in there. And you know, if if you got it at your sort of as you were coming off watch, you get it hot, and then some people would have it cold, like a few hours later, you know, because everyone's you're doing it just to explain the watch system a little bit. That's how most teams did it. You, uh, if there's eight people in your watch system, you basically are a pair, or you're with someone else. So there's two of you, and you're opposite another two people. So when you go on deck, those two guys or girls come down, and then there's two people that have been on deck for two hours already. So you don't have you don't have half the crew swapping for the other half. It's sort of staggered throughout. So that's how that works. Uh, so yeah, that, some teams would sort of cook and bulk for everyone and we had it that we would just cook for our partner uh so i was pretty lucky that i was actually the way we went most of the way around the world i drove for the last um sort of half of our our watch our four hours so my other watch partner he would often be able to sneak down sort of early and we would sail the boat with just three of us on deck instead of four and he would sort of cook our meals at that stage and then uh he would normally be in the bunk by the time I got down or close to it. And then I would have my meal ready to go and then would be able to get in the bunk soon after. Was there any um, kind of traditions or, or sort of um, funny things that you guys would do? Or, or is it all just kind of just focus on sailing, going fast and then resting? Yeah, for the most part, that's it, right? Like, it's just make the boat go fast. The navigator and along with a few of us on board, we try and make sure we're going in the right direction and sort of, you know, where the other boats, you know, knowing where the other boats are going and that sort of thing. But, yeah, you're out there for a long time. You're doing a pretty pretty cool thing, right? Like, a um, couple of examples. When we went across the equator for the first time, it was my first equator crossing along with, I think, two or other, three other people on board the boat. Um, and at that stage, you have to pay your tributes to King Neptune for crossing the equator. So I got this sort of strip straight shave through my head to like a zero or number one or something, um, which was pretty filthy look. And sort of you get some old um, 
flying fish which had landed on the boat in the last couple of days they'd sort of stored that up and uh sort of throw that at you so it's pretty pretty gross but that's one that's one thing and then i guess the other one that comes to mind is when you make it around cape horn uh which is a pretty special place that you uh we 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 made it around actually in quite uh bizarre circumstances with uh ripping the mainsail basically right at cape horn but nevertheless we uh still um toasted had a had had some little a uh, bit of rum on board sort of give a little bit to the ocean and everyone on the the crew um scouts or sort of have a sip as well so that's uh that was pretty classic is is cape horn i mean you hear the stories about how it's one of the hardest places to cross um or, or sail through did you guys have any trouble there? I mean, obviously the mainsail broke. Was that was that because you guys were pushing it a bit too hard, or, or did something else happen? Or I think for us, it was really the lead up to Cape Horn, which is the roughest. So we had a um, rough pretty much from like two or three days out from leaving New Zealand, and then you know, so from sort of maybe five hundred miles south of the Chatham Islands, the whole way across to Cape Horn was pretty well rough. So we we you know, been hanging on for sort of 10 days. And then, yeah, the conditions were still windy and, and, and quite rough at Cape Horn, but our mainsail breaking was more a lead-up from the lead-up events. Uh, but, you know, I've heard stories of people going around there when it's pretty gnarly. And you don't actually, I guess it's it's pretty iconic because it marks the end of the Southern Ocean, right? And you've, you've traveled this whole crazy, beautiful, wild place to get there. So it, it certainly brings out a lot of emotion, uh, but you're not out of it there. Like you still, it takes quite a while to get north enough to, for it not to be cold, you know. And quite often, when you're coming around sort of Patagonia and getting up there, it's you know it's still pretty cold at that stage. How far? I mean, how far south are you guys when you're going through the Southern Ocean? Are you, are you in the forty degrees, fifty degrees, or, or do you just sort of follow the wind? Or what was? Yeah, so something they've introduced in the ocean race in the last probably three editions, especially now that the boat's going a lot faster, is that they've put in these virtual ice gates. So that's to stop stop you basically interacting with icebergs. So now that, especially in recent years, the boat's going faster, but also satellite technology's got better, so they're able to see where these icebergs are. And then they put this virtual line basically a good buffer above that so that we shouldn't interact with uh, icebergs but you're still you're basically trying to dive as far south as you can so if you watch the the trackers on the race you'd see that at certain stages you're kind of what we would call bouncing along this the ice gate so this virtual barrier stopping you going further south and it's because sort of you want it there's more wind south and it's uh, as close as you're trying to go further south if you can uh, so that's yeah, that's um, that's kind of what's been introduced in the last few editions, but it still means you get pretty far south. Like you probably, well, Cape Horn's at 57 degrees uh, south, I think, and you probably go slightly further south than that. Did you guys see any icebergs at all, or are you kind of, is that barrier big enough that kind of nothing came into line of sight? Yeah, no, it's big enough. You know, they put, because they've got that, they're putting a, a fair buffer on it. Yeah. The closest we actually got was uh, not in the Southern Ocean, it was in the Atlantic Ocean when we left Newport heading for 
Wales and uh, just sort of below Greenland, um, Newfoundland there, it was pretty cold water. The water got down to zero degrees at one stage and actually uh, our navigator thought he spotted something on the, on the, um, on the radar, which uh, was pretty scary because at the time it was full, full fog, like you probably only see about 50 metres in front of the boat or something like that. We're doing 18, 20 knots or something, so fair getting along. And then you hear the navigator say that, you know, potential iceberg, like one mile off the port bow or something. It's like, <laughs> if that's there, there's, you know, we're in deep crap. How much time was, to uh, kind of adjust and figure out the move? Nah, so I just got off watch. So I sort of put my head up and told the guys, and they're like, well, what can we do, you know? like So then I sort of was just to go, go between for a little bit for 10 minutes uh, between the navigator. And it didn't, we, I think we pinged it one more time and then we kind of passed it. And then, yeah, we sort of uh, got back towards warmer water, but I didn't didn't sleep that well going uh, going into the bunk that one. Yeah, I can I can imagine. Do you guys um do you guys see? I mean, I know you, you you've talked about seeing albatross and 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 the, the flying fish, but do you see much other wildlife while you're out there, or is it just kind of you and, and big blue? That was something that's pretty surprising to me. Like it. You know, growing up on the northern coast, you go out into the, you know, the coastal waters, what I think was the ocean here, you know, once you get into the blue water and you see quite a lot of um, school fish, bird life, big workups. Uh, but when you get into the proper ocean, you don't see much of that, you know, it's it's pretty sparse. Obviously, you're only going through a really small part of it. So, you, you know, you could miss something by half a mile and you probably wouldn't see it. But that was something that surprised me was the lack of, wildlife that you, you see in the ocean I think the only exception to that is the southern ocean when you see quite a few birds uh, obviously albatross but also a lot of other little birds too which is you know pretty cool because it's quite a wild place down there so you know they're really your only mates at that stage yeah and I mean I know I know that um you and Peter have started live ocean which which is awesome to see um you guys kind of bringing that that sailing part of your life and now, and now kind of turning some of your attention to some of the issues around ocean health. Have you guys, have you guys kind of started that? Um, because there's a lot of voices out there, but they may not have um, the same um, audiences that you guys have or, or the same ability to kind of connect with people that, that you guys have. Is, is that kind of one of the, the big driving purposes of Live Ocean? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, we came back from the ocean race and, you know, wanted to do more. We, it wasn't just what we saw and learned during the race. I think we've had a passion for the ocean since we were pretty young. But I think that was the catalyst because it sort of kick-started a lot of our, our conversations and that. And we spent quite a long time, you know, last year and the year before just figuring out how the best we could help because we weren't happy with the direction, of, you know, the oceans were heading. But yeah, I think we also, you know, felt we had a responsibility. We understand that through our sailing, we've sort of got this this platform and quite a, a reach. And with our passion for the ocean and wanting to see it improve, we kind of wanted to bring both those together. And after sort of, um, you know, working with Sally, who's now the CE at Live Ocean, we kind of, you know, realised that the best way for us to do that was to start our own 
own charity and that wasn't something we sort of took lightly because we didn't want to just set up our own charity for the sake of setting up a charity. So that's, um, you know, that's how Live Ocean was born. Yeah, well, and one of the first projects that you guys have uh, got behind is the, the Antipodean Albatross. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about, um, about that project and why you guys kind of picked that one? Yeah, so we just sort of formed Live Ocean and we're looking for the first project to get behind and this one was put in front of us and you know, I think pretty quickly it, it resonated really well with us because we'd, we'd just done the race and uh, we'd seen Albatross and you know, I think they've not only special to us but anyone that spends time in these really unique places, you know, a lot, a lot of people though the Albatross or the Antipodean Albatross in New Zealand birds, a lot of people will never see them because they're you know, their homes are almost a thousand kilometers southeast of New Zealand and then they voyage, you know, go off on these massive voyages. So I think we felt pretty um, sort of drawn to them, felt like we had a real connection. And I think what, what we also saw was that, which appealed to us was, you know, they were declining at a rapid rate and unless uh, we, or, you know, there's already a lot of work, but unless um, more was to be done, then they're going to, you know, be extinct so and also the project that we we're getting behind by funding these satellite track trackers is like a pure you know science based project it's using technology just putting these trackers on the birds seeing where they're going seeing whether they're potentially getting into strife with fishing fleets and then doing something from there so i think that appealed to us too yeah i think i mean i think that's one of the really critical things when we think about the ocean is you know even if we do have these small protected areas, um, a lot of, uh, be the fish or, or the birds or, or whatever the animal is, that their range is so much further than that. And so having a good understanding of, of where they're going is really critical. Um, what, do you, what Do you guys have um, other kind of projects or other things um, that, you're, that you can talk about yet? Or, or is it all still, are you still trying to figure out a few of the next steps? Yeah, we're pretty close to uh, launching the next project we're going to get behind. Um, but yeah, we're, we're still figuring out exactly what those are. And I think, you know, it's been really encouraging to see the support of, um, you know, the public behind the Antipian Albatross. But it's also confirmed to us, I think, that, you know, if, you know, we um, sort of talk about things and amplify them, which is one of Live Ocean's. Uh, main sort of goals that it, you know can get a bit of traction so I think that's been really um, good to see you know I think we're sort of looking at a, another project um, with the right whales down in the sub ants uh, that'll, that'll be a good one to get behind so that's um, yeah that's probably next on the list but we're all yeah we're looking at you know things all over New Zealand and you know to make up a healthy ocean you need to needs to all work together so that's something we've been pretty big on from the start that it's not just one thing or you know that you're going to have to fix because if you know if anything sort of misses in that chain then it, it doesn't it doesn't work out how it should do so you know the project's going to be science-based science sort of led i think it's the only way to do it is to follow science it's you know it's really you know the ocean's so massive if you try and do it from any other way but science you'll sort of be struggling you know so um yeah that's kind of where we're at yeah, awesome. I think I think that's a that's a great um, way way to end. And I think you know what you guys are doing, trying to amplify some of these messages, is is great. Um, 
to take that initiative um, beyond um, your your professional uh, field. So thanks so much uh, for, for chatting today, Blair. No, no worries. I'll just add to that. Yeah, that's, you know, that's one thing I will say is there is a lot of good work going on in the ocean space in New Zealand, and that's what we identified when we first came into the space. You know, there's um, people in all different sort of avenues pushing good messages, doing great work, and, you know, that's got to happen, and hopefully we can just amplify and can really accelerate some of these projects. So thanks yeah, I think that's the yeah, how, how, how we amplify and then how we can kind of bring all the different groups together to um, yeah. to kind of work collectively to to get some positive outcomes. So awesome. Thanks, man. Nice. Thanks for having me, dude. Good to catch up. Yeah, for sure. Thanks, everyone. Go well.